Chapter Twenty Seven of Thomas Wingfold, Curate, by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven: Leopold's Story Concluded. He knew from her letters that they were going to give a ball, at which as many as pleased should be welcome in fancy dresses and masked if they chose. The night before it he had a dream, under the influence of his familiar, no doubt, which made him so miserable and jealous that he longed to see her as a wounded man longs for water and the thought arose of going down to the ball not exactly in disguise for he had no mind to act a part but masked so that he should not be recognized as uninvited and should have an opportunity of watching emmeline concerning whose engagement with a young cavalry officer there had lately been reports which, however, before his dream had caused him less uneasiness than many such preceding. The same moment the thought was a resolve. I must mention that no one whatever knew the degree of his intimacy with Emmeline, or that he had any ground for considering her engaged to him. Secrecy added much to the zest of Emmeline's pleasures. Everyone knew that he was a devoted admirer, but therein to be classed with a host. For concealment he contented himself with a large travelling cloak, a tall felt hat, and a black silk mask. He entered the grounds with an arrival of guests, and knowing the place perfectly, contrived to see something of her behaviour while he watched for an opportunity of speaking to her alone, a quest of unlikely success. Hour after hour he watched, and all the time never spoke or was spoken to. Those who are acquainted with the mode of operation of the drug to which I have referred are aware that a man may be fully under its influences without betraying to the ordinary observer that he is in a condition differing from that of other men. But in the living dream wherein he walks, his feeling of time and of space is so enlarged, or perhaps I rather think so subdivided to the consciousness, that everything about him seems infinite both in duration and extent. The action of a second has in it a multitudinous gradation of progress and a line of space is marked out into millionths, of every one of which the consciousness takes note. At the same time his senses are open to every impression from things around him, only they appear to him in a strangely exalted metamorphosis. The reflex of his own mental exaltation, either in bliss or torture, while the fancies of a man mingle with the facts thus introduced and modify, and are in turn modified by them, whereby out of the chaos arises the mountain of an earthly paradise, whose roots are in the depths of hell. And whether the man be with the divine air and the clear rivers and the thousand-hued flowers on the top, or down in the ice lake with the tears frozen to hard lumps in the hollows of his eyes, so that he can no more have even the poor consolation of weeping, is but the turning of a hair, so far, at least, as his will has to do with it. 
the least intrusion of anything painful, any jar that cannot be wrought into the general harmony of the vision, will suddenly alter its character, and from the seventh heaven of speechless bliss the man may fall plumb down into gulfs of horrible and torturing. It may be loathsome imaginings. Now Leopold had taken a dose of the drug on his journey, and it was later than usual, probably because of the motion, ere it began to take effect. He had indeed ceased to look for any result from it, when, all at once, as he stood amongst the labyrinths and lilacs of a rather late spring, something seemed to burst in his brain, and that moment he was in diamond, waiting for Diana in her interlunar grove, while the music of the spheres made the blossoms of a stately yet flowering forest tremble all with conscious delight. Emboldened by his new condition, he drew nigh the house. They were then passing from the ball to the supper-room, and he found the tumult so distasteful to his mood of still ecstasy that he would not have entered had he not remembered that he had in his pocket a note ready, if needful, to slip into her hand, containing only the words, Meet me for one long minute at the circle. He threw his cloak, Spanish fashion, over his left shoulder, slouched his hat, and, entering, stood in a shadowy spot where she must pass in going to or from the supper-room. There he waited with the note hid in his hand a long time, yet not a weary one. Such visions of loveliness passed before his entranced gaze. At length she also passed, lovely as the Diana whose dress she had copied, not quite so perfectly as she had abjured her manners. She leaned trustingly on the arm of someone, but Leopold never even looked at him. He slid the note into her hand, which hung ungloved as inviting confidences. With an instinct quickened and sharpened tenfold by much practice, her fingers instantly closed upon it, but not a muscle belonging to any other part of her betrayed the intrusion of a foreign body. I do not believe her heart gave one beat the more the next minute. She passed graceful on, her swan's neck shining, and Leopold hastened out to one of the windows of the ballroom, there to feast his eyes upon her loveliness. But when he caught sight of her, whirling in the waltz with the officer of dragoons whose name he had heard coupled with hers, and saw her flash on him the light and power of eyes which were to him the windows of all the heaven he knew. As they swam together in the joy of the rhythm of the motion of the music, suddenly the whole frame of the dream wherein he wandered trembled, shook, fell down into the dreary vaults that underlie all the airy castles that have other foundation than the will of the eternal builder. With the suddenness of the dark that follows the lightning, the music changed to a dissonant clash of multitudinous cymbals, the resounding clang of brazen doors and the hundred-toned screams of souls in torture. The same moment, from halls of infinite scope, 
where the very air was a soft tumult of veiled melodies, ever and anon twisted into inextricable knots of harmony, under whose skyey domes he swept, upborne by chords of sound, throbbing against great wings mighty as though, yet in their motions as easy and subtle, he found himself lying on the floor of a large vault, whose black slabs were worn into many hollows by the bare feet of the damned, as they went on and came between the chambers of their torture, opening off upon every side whence issued all kinds of sickening cries, and mingled with the music to which, with whips of steel, hellish executioners urged the dance, whose every motion was an agony. His soul fainted within him, and the vision changed. When he came to himself, he lay on the little plot of grass amongst the lilacs and the laburnums where he had asked Emmeline to meet him. Fevered with jealousy and the horrible drug, his mouth was parched like an old purse, and he found himself chewing at the grass to ease its burning and drought. But presently the evil thing resumed its sway, and fancies usurped over facts. He thought he was lying in an Indian jungle, close by the cave of a beautiful tigress which crouched within, waiting the first sting of reviving hunger to devour him. He could hear her breathing as she slept, but he was fascinated, paralyzed, and could not escape, knowing that even if, with mighty effort, he succeeded in moving a finger, the motion would suffice to wake her, and she would spring upon him and tear him to pieces. Years upon years passed thus, and he still lay on the grass in the jungle, and still the beautiful tigress slept. But however far apart the knots upon the string of time may lie, they must pass. An angel in white stood over him. His fears vanished. The waving of her wings cooled him and she was the angel whom he had loved and loved from all eternity, in whom was his ever and only rest. She lifted him to his feet, gave him her hand. They walked away, and the tigress was asleep forever. For miles and miles, as it seemed to his exaltation, they wandered away into the woods to wander in them forever the same violet blue flashing with roseate stars, forever looking in through the treetops and the great leafy branches hushing, ever hushing them, as with the voices of child-watching mothers, into peace whose depth is bliss. "'Have you nothing to say now I am come?' said the angel. "'I have said all. I am at rest,' answered the mortal." I am going to be married to Captain Hodge, said the angel. And with the words, the forests of heaven vanished, and the halls of Eblis did not take their place. A worse hell was there, the cold reality of an earth abjured and a worthless maiden walking by his side. He stood and turned to her. The shock had mastered the drug. They were only in the little wooded hollow a hundred yards from the house. The blood throbbed in his head as from the piston of an engine. A horrid sound of dance music was in his ears. Emmeline, his own, stood in her white dress, looking up in his face with the words just parted from her lips, I am going to be married 
to Captain Hodge. The next moment she threw her arms around his neck, pulled his face to hers, and kissed him and clung to him. Poor Leopold, she said, and looked in his face with her electric battery at full power. Does it make him miserable, then? But you know it could not have gone on like this between you and me forever. It was very dear while it lasted, but it must come to an end. Was there a glimmer of real pity and sadness in those wondrous eyes? She laughed. Was it a laugh of despair or of exaltation, and hid her face on his bosom, and what was it that awoke in Leopold? Had the drug resumed its power over him? Was it rage at her mockery or infinite compassion for her despair? Would he slay a demon or ransom a spirit from hateful bonds? Would he save a woman from disgrace and misery to come, or punish her for the vilest falsehood? Who can tell? For Leopold himself never could. Whatever the feeling was, its own violence erased it from his memory and left him with a knife in his hand and Emmeline lying motionless at his feet. It was a knife the Scotch Highlanders called a skin sharp-pointed as a needle, sharp-edged as a razor, and with one blow of it he had cleft her heart and she never cried or laughed any more in that body whose charm she had degraded to the vile servitude of her vanity. The next thing he remembered was standing on the edge of the shaft of a deserted coal pit, ready to cast himself down. Whence came the change of resolve he could not tell, but he threw in his cloak and mask and fled. The one thought in his miserable brain was his sister. Having murdered one woman, he was fleeing to another for refuge. Helen would save him. How he had found his way to his haven, he had not an idea. Searching the newspapers, Helen heard that a week had elapsed between the mysterious murder of a young lady in Yorkshire and the night on which he came to her window. End of chapter 27 Reading by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois.